can accept it or be stupid and be a skeptic. Welcome to the I Want to Believe podcast. I'm Nomar Slevic. Was there some sort of alien intervention on the roads of northern New Hampshire back in 1961? I'll tell you in a sec. But first, a quick reminder that all of our I Want to Believe social media and email are in the show notes. My brand new book, Granite Skies, is now available for purchase. You can get that at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine, Amazon, Kindle, or a signed copy can be obtained from my online store. All of that and more can be found at allmylinks.com slash Slevic, or just see the links in the show notes. All right, let's talk about the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. Betty had a vacation from her job as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the post office, neither believed in UFO reality at that time. They had never read a book on the topic. They took a brief vacation to Niagara Falls, onto Toronto, onto Montreal, and they were driving home through the White Mountains of New Hampshire on September 19, 1961, when they had uh, a close encounter with a UFO. A social worker and a postal employee walk into a boarding house. While this could lend itself to the variant of the old bar joke, it's actually how Betty Barrett met Barney Hill. In the ultimate book of jokes by author Scott McNeely, the first bar joke was published in 1952. It wasn't until four years later in 1956 when Barney and Betty met. Their unexpected kinship turned into a relationship and they were married four years after that in 1960. Due to employment commitments, the beginning of their marriage was essentially a long-distance union. Barney worked and resided in Philadelphia while Betty worked and lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Almost a year later, Barney was able to transfer to a postal service job in Boston, allowing him and Betty to finally live together in Portsmouth. Once they were settled and living together, they finally began talking about taking the long overdue honeymoon they had to delay while living apart. In September of 1961, Barney surprised Betty with time off from his new job, and it was decided that they would drive to Niagara Falls the next day. Since it was a spur-of-the-moment trip, there wasn't much time to plan and prepare, and they ended up not having as much money as they had hoped. Despite this, though, they were up for an adventure and decided to pack food and, if need be, sleep in the car for a night or two. They started their trip on Sunday, September 17, slowly making their way to Niagara Falls, then on to Toronto and eventually Montreal. On Tuesday, September 19, they decided to get a hotel room in Montreal to enjoy the city's night spots, but Barney got lost while driving around the town and they had trouble locating a hotel room. There was also a tropical storm headed towards the east coast and they knew it would slow their return home and back to their jobs. So instead of continuing to search for a room in the outskirts of town, they decided to start their long trek back to New Hampshire. 
They knew they would have to drive into the early morning hours, but if they were careful and took their time, they would eventually reach their home early on Wednesday, September 20. A little before 11 p.m., the hills were south of Lancaster, New Hampshire. That was when Betty observed a bright point of light that moved uncharacteristically around the night sky. She brought it to Barney's attention, but he was concentrated on the drive and was dismissive of the light. Betty eventually reasoned that it was a shooting star and looked away. Not long after, though, the light grew larger and brighter, and it caught Betty's attention again. She brought it up to Barney and was insistent that they pull over to observe it through binoculars. Barney finally agreed and stopped at a picnic area near Twin Mountain. Betty looked at the light through their binoculars and told her husband that it might be some sort of craft, maybe a UFO. Barney took a look and thought it was probably just an airplane. As he continued to watch, the craft descended bizarrely and in their direction. This startled the hills, and they jumped into their car and drove off toward Franconia Notch. As they drove, they continued to observe the craft, and they said it passed above a restaurant in a nearby mountain. It went out of sight for a moment and re-emerged near the old man of the mountain. The craft was so low at this point that Betty observed it rotating and estimated its diameter at 60 to 80 feet. They kept watch as it seemingly tailed them until it descended quickly towards their vehicle near the Indian Head area. Barney was dumbfounded and slammed on the brakes. They came to a stop in the middle of the road as the craft hovered low overhead. Out of curiosity, Barney stepped out of the vehicle and looked at the craft through the binoculars again. His eyes widened in terror when he observed a dozen or so humanoid figures all standing at the craft's windows staring at the hills. As they drove, Betty and Barney began feeling an odd buzzing sensation and could actually hear buzzing all around them throughout their vehicle. It finally faded away and they didn't say much to each other during this time. The only goal was to get as far away from the craft as possible. After a while, the buzzing started again, and their thoughts became manic, and then their minds dazed. They had unexplained memories of some sort of checkpoint or roadblock, and none of it made sense. As their thoughts cleared, they realized they were getting closer to their destination, and figured they'd arrive home around 3 o'clock in the morning. As they reached Portsmouth, day broke and their confusion returned. They were unable to understand how so much more time had passed than was possible. They arrived home about two hours later than predicted. Once home, Betty had the urge to keep their luggage by the back door, not wanting it in their home more than necessary. They reported that both of their watches stopped working and the strap on their binoculars was broken, but neither had an explanation for its damage. Barney's shoes, previously free from scuffs, were now scraped and marked for unknown reasons. He also said that he felt an unexplained need to examine his genitals, though ultimately finding nothing out of the ordinary. Exhausted from their ordeal, they slept for a while. Once awake, Betty observed that her dress had been damaged and it had an odd pink substance on it. 
They also found odd circle markings on the trunk of their car. Decades later, Kathleen Martin unearthed some writings in a diary of Betty's and found one that chronicled their arrival home that morning in 1961. Betty wrote, quote, We entered our home, turned on the lights, and went over to the window and looked skyward. We stood there for several minutes. Then Barney said, This is the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. We both wondered if they would come back. We felt very calm, peaceful, relaxed. We sat at the kitchen table, looked at each other, and shook our heads in puzzlement. We asked each other, do you believe what happened? We agreed that it was unbelievable, but it had really happened. We would return to the window and look skyward. Not long after returning home, Betty called her sister Janet and shared hers and Barney's experience. Janet had witnessed a UFO in the 1950s and Betty figured she would be non-judgmental of their encounter. After their conversation, the story ran rampant through the extended family, all never doubting the hills. Some even suggested contacting Pease Air Force Base and using a compass to experiment with potential readings their vehicle might be giving off. Another writing of Betty's read, quote, I took the compass and went out to the car. Barney refused to go, saying that he was trying to forget what happened. It was still raining, but I could see my car clearly under the streetlight in front of my home. I walked around it, holding the compass and not knowing what I was looking for. When I came to the trunk area, I saw many highly polished spots about the size of a half dollar or silver dollar. The car was wet from the rain, but these spots were clearly showing. I wondered what they were. I placed the compass over them, and it began spinning and spinning. I thought it must be the way that I was balancing the compass, so I placed it on the car and took my hand away. The compass was really spinning and continued to do this. As I watched this, I was filled with this unexplained feeling of absolute terror. I was standing there in the rain under the streetlight and telling myself, don't scream, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Everything is all right. On September 21, an apprehensive Betty called Pease Air Force Base to report their encounter. She didn't tell them everything that happened, but what she did share was enough to warrant a callback the next day from a Major Paul W. Henderson, who sought more information on the encounter. Major Henderson filed a report on September 26 and ultimately determined that they were merely misidentifying the planet Jupiter. Betty, not pleased with the outcome of the report, wrote a letter to retired Marine Corps Major Donald E. Kehoe. At the time, he was the head of the National Investigations Committee of Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP. She related the entirety of their encounter, leaving nothing out, and also shared that she and Barney were open to the idea of going under hypnosis. Eventually, a member of NICAP, Walter Webb, responded to the Hills and interviewed them extensively. The Hills were pleased to know that Webb believed them wholeheartedly.
Not long after their initial encounter, Betty had a series of dreams which seemingly detailed the goings-ons of their missing time in elaborate detail. They were intense dreams of becoming apprehended by human-like soldiers and taken aboard a craft. She and Barney were separated, and Betty was subjected to a series of odd medical tests, and she knew Barney was experiencing the same thing. Betty shared her dreams with Barney, but he feared their implications and did not want to hear any more about them. As the years went by, the Hills shared their encounter with more and more people and even spoke publicly a few times around New Hampshire and Massachusetts. By happenstance, they met Ben Sweat, a captain from the Air Force who had a personal interest in hypnosis. After the Hills shared their encounter with him, they spoke of their consideration of hypnosis to help them not only recall the encounter, but to also cope with the fallout. Barney especially was suffering and seeing a psychiatrist as a result. Sweat recommended that Barney speak to his doctor so they could recommend a professional. They did just that. And on January 4, 1964, a Dr. Benjamin Simon began hypnosis sessions on the hills. Through those sessions, much was learned of the missing time the hills had in 1961. During Barney's sessions, he recalled the non-human figures and was so frightened by them that he kept his eyes closed. Barney also recalled that his binocular strap broke when he ran from the craft and back to his car. He remembered he and Betty fleeing the UFO but felt compelled to pull onto a dirt road, and that's where they witnessed six men standing. The car stopped moving on its own and was approached by the men on the road. When the men or beings stared into their eyes, he felt a mesmerizing effect and was very much afraid of their eyes. He recalled being taken to a room by three of the beings and told to lay on an examination table. Since Barney kept his eyes closed for most of the exam, those parts of his sessions are not as detailed as Betty's. He did remember hearing them communicate with one another in a language he did not understand. He also said that when they did communicate with him, no words were spoken. Instead, he heard it in his mind. He finally remembered being returned to their vehicle feeling heavily drugged or dazed. Betty's memories during her sessions were quite similar to some of the dreams she had. The most dramatic pieces emerged in the form of a book and a star map. In one of her sessions, Betty spoke of a leader that she communicated with after her examination. The following excerpt is from John G. Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey. Quote, I felt I was grateful to meet him because he stopped my pain and now I wasn't afraid at all. And so I started talking with the leader and I said to him that this has been quite the experience. It was unbelievable. No one would ever, ever believe me, and that what I needed was some proof that this had really happened. He said, what kind of proof did I want? What would I like? And I said, well, if he could give me something to take back with me, then people would believe it. And so he told me to look around and maybe I could find something I would like to take. And I did. There wasn't much around, but on a cabinet there was a book. The leader asked Betty to look through the book to see if she could understand any of it. She didn't, but still she wanted it. Eventually he agreed and this delighted Betty. 
Toward the end of their abduction, the leader actually took the book away from Betty. She was upset, but the leader explained that his colleagues, the other occupants of the craft, they didn't want her to take it, and so she had to give it up. She eventually gave in. Under hypnosis, Betty revealed that the leader showed her a star map. From Fuller's book, quote, Betty Hill described a map she was shown by the leader aboard the ship. Later, she sketched it. She said she was told that the heavy lines marked trade routes and that the broken lines recorded various space expeditions. The map was later used by Marjorie Fish, a schoolteacher and a member of Mensa. From Friedman and Martin's book Captured, quote, Fish informed Betty that she had developed an interest in attempting to identify the astronomical location of the stars on the map. This gave Fish the chance to verify scientifically whether or not the star cluster Betty drew represented a real set of stars. Over a period of time, Fish was able to correlate that data. She said, quote, it seemed to substantiate the validity of Betty's star map. Betty and Barney Hill's abduction has been covered multiple times and in multiple mediums, from television and movies to books, magazines, and podcasts. To get the entirety of their encounter in varying degrees of detail, I do recommend the following. For books, The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller. Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience by Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. There is a TV movie called The UFO Incident, and you can actually watch it for free on YouTube. There's a web series called Rogue Mysteries that's available on Amazon Prime. It's actually directed by my buddy Bill Brock, and he covers the Betty and Barney Hill case through two episodes. It's really great. Check it out. And there's also Kathleen Martin's website, which is simply Kathleen-Martin.com. Now, this podcast just went over their long drive and the abduction scenario. These other works definitely go into more detail of Betty and Barney Hill's life, what they experienced as an aftermath, and are certainly worth checking out. Thank you so much for listening. I'm No Marsh Loving. Well,